Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures in Australia and around the world, and their struggles for social justice. I'm Lourdes Garcia Larque. On today's show, we will discuss about the basis and history of the racist police violence in the United States that has been drawn to the media attention since the killing of Eric Garner and Michael Brown in New York and Ferguson, respectively. We will also discuss about environmental racism and race as a factor in determining where toxic waste is dumped in the United States. For this discussion, we spoke with Emily Wu, a Korean-American activist. She is a queer feminist and an organizer with Radical Women. She is also the chair of the National Comrades of Color Caucus of her organization in New York. Last week, we presented an interview discussing the launch of the recently published book Talking Back, Voices of Color, an anthology edited by Nelly Wong and published by Red Letter Press. This book compiles writings from youth political prisoners, feminists, immigrants, and more in the voices of African-Americans, Latinas, indigenous people, Arab immigrants, political prisoners, and many others. Emily Wu is also a contributor to this book. Thank you, Lulu, for having me. It's always so exciting to be able to have a conversation across oceans and borders, uh, since we know the borders are really created by the ruling class, not by us. Maybe we can start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in activism. Sure. Well, I actually had um, a, a special um, uh, exposure to politics because my mother, Merle Wu, who is also in Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, my organizations, um, she was an activist when I was um, in high school. She became an activist. And um, she had also been active in the ethnic studies struggles and campus struggles and uh, battles for student rights on campus at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley. Um, and then she herself fought two discrimination cases against UC Berkeley, which were multi-discrimination cases based on race, gender, sexuality, and political ideology. Um, so I was, I was introduced to politics through my mother, but actually it was after I moved to New York, I grew up in San Francisco. Um, my mother still lives in San Francisco um, and she's still active with Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party there. Um, but it was after I moved to New York City um, and I moved here to go to acting school um, and actually pursue an acting career as so many people do move to New York for. Um, And, uh, and I really found that um, my life as um, a queer Asian American person of color um, and a student um, and worker um, that, you know, so many issues came together for me um, when I moved um, out, of the, out of the house and, um, and to New York and was living independently. Um, and so then I actually started attending meetings of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party myself here. Um, and and uh, and I just really felt that the the two organizations addressed every aspect. They addressed me as a whole, um, all aspects of my identity. I didn't have to separate off, um, you know, 
addressing just Asian American issues or just um, feminist issues um, or just queer issues. Um, and so that's, um, that's a little bit of my background. The brutality of police, mainly white police, against black American people is nothing new. In fact, the first modern police in the United States were groups organized to patrol slaves and find and punish runaway slaves. In modern days, one black person is killed every 28 hours in the United States. These statistics were given a face with the recent killings by police of Eric Garner in New York and Michael Brown in Ferguson. These killings sparked massive demonstrations and acts of defiance that shut cities down. Yes, well, um, you're right about New York. Uh, I think particularly after the decision um, in Ferguson was announced um, and then so closely timed with um, the, the murder, the police murder of Eric Garner in Staten Island, um, he was the man who um, died from the chokehold by the cops um, and uh, he was pinned to the ground um, and several times he said, I can't breathe that you, you probably know um, led to the chant, I can't breathe, that was used in many demonstrations. Um, so yes, in New York, we're very familiar with that police violence. Um, and actually it goes back much further than Eric Garner and Ferguson. Um, there was Amadou Diallo um, several years ago and Eleanor Bumpers, um, and then uh, Cliffy Glover in the 1970s. Um, you know, who was a, a 10 year old uh, shot by the and killed by a cop who um, ended up being um, exonerated. Um, so there's a long, long history and certainly goes back even further than that um, of police violence. Um, and I think that, and actually, police violence is so endemic to the capitalist system that as long as we live under capitalism, there will be police violence. Um, since, you know, we, we know that the role of the, the cops is really to protect uh, priority, private property um, and the ruling class um, interests um, and, and certainly not our communities and to keep us safe. Um, so we, we really have um, an activist and an educational approach. Um, we, we are an activist organization, um, the Freedom Socialist Party. And so we uh, are out at the demonstrations we have been fighting alongside with um, all those who have been out on the streets calling for an end to the police killings um, and calling for um, uh, civilian control of the police, for example, as a demand. Um, and, and at the same time, we are fighting for an end to capitalism because we do recognize that, um, again, as long as we live under this economic and social system, um, that violence will exist. So, um, you know, like any reform, um, whether it be desegregation in the schools um, or abortion rights, uh, every reform that the movements and communities have ever won um, are all, always under attack. So um, that's why the, the long vision is to um, make a revolution, build a revolution that can uh, really get rid of capitalism and, and replace it with socialism. And, and for me, a socialist feminist society, because women um, are always the hardest hit um, in, in any oppressed group. Well, I could not agree more with what you are saying, that there is a system that is discriminatory and racist on the core, 
and that perpetuates this cycle of brutality against the poor and against people of color. But while there is a massive change that is able to challenge all this, your organization is proposing some sort of community review boards of the police. Can you explain what these are? Sure. Well, um, you know, it's something that hasn't existed yet because we actually have some in the United States, we do have some uh, what they call civilian review boards. But the problem is that they're generally um, uh, um, appointed, uh, the members are appointed rather than being truly elected by the community. So um, what, what I'm talking about and what the Freedom Socialist Party would like to see um, are boards whose members are truly elected by the community. So it would be people representing us, representing um, oppressed communities um, and, and truly our interests rather than the interests of the politicians um, and the, the bosses and the landlords um, and the institutions mm. of the system. Yeah, including um, so the police, I imagine. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the United States, the first police unit was um, was actually formed to capture runaway slaves. So the whole history of the police is a, is a very, and the role is a very clear one, I think. Mm. So for what you mentioned about the first police, also seems that this aggression against people of color has been an, an essential part of its his, history from the beginning. Yes, I think um, the whole uh, establishment of race as a phenomenon, um, you know, race is not really a scientific category. It doesn't really exist as a, as a scientific um, uh, phenomenon, but it was created by the, the um, powers that be in order to justify, um, you know, stealing the land from indigenous peoples, to justify enslavement um, of Africans, um, to justify um, inferior education in the black and other people of color communities, um, to justify lower wages for people of color and women, um, to uh, justify the, um, the ongoing rampant uh, violence in our communities. Um, and really that violence does serve to, to keep us under control, to prevent us from Um, fighting back against the system, from taking control ourselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it has, a, has, to me, a real inseparable link to the whole history of capitalism um, and, um, and police violence is all, um, I think, intertwined with that. Yeah, well, we see something similar here in Australia, how the, the government promotes this anti-Muslim and anti Arabic in general, uh, fear. So the working class is unable to unite because we fear the Muslim or feel the, uh, fear the Arabs instead of fearing the attacks that are yes. happening to us as workers as, and as, as working and poor people of the country. You are listening to Accent of Women on Satellite Across Australia. And we are speaking with Emily Wu. She's a Korean-American activist, a queer feminist, and an organizer with Radical Women in New York. Emily is a contributor to the book Talking Back, Voices of Color, an anthology that collects writings by activists, radicals, and organizers. If you are in Melbourne, this book is to be launched on May 2 at 4.30 p.m. at the Solidarity Salon in 580 Sydney Road in Brunswick. Well, the, uh, talking about more about racism 
uh, discrimination and exploitations also that is something that we are raising and that talking back um, addresses in every article of or every piece of its content. Um, there is an article written by you that is called Environmental Racism in Urban Communities of Color. And yes. you begin your article by quoting, quoting a study that reveals that race was the single most important factor in determining where the toxic waste was dumped in the United State, States. Yes. So this is a pattern not exclusive to the United States. So we here right. in Australia see how many uh, places that are sacred Aboriginal sites or Aboriginal communities receive waste or are exploited in a way that white communities wouldn't be, or some are, unfortunately, too. But um, that happens, and happens around the world. Maybe if you could tell us some of the examples that you raise in this article or that you have seen in your experience. Yes, I think, um, you know, it's not a mistake that the leadership um, against these issues, against these attacks, um, does come from the very people who are the most affected by these issues um, and by these um, forms of exploitation um, and, um, and abuse. Uh, so naturally, there has been a whole history of um, uh, organizing by the black community against what I talk about in the article, um, which is the placement of toxic facilities in the black community and in other people of color communities. I mean, certainly that's true also for um, uh, Latino communities in other parts of the United States. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, for decades, the, the black community has been largely in the lead of uh, fighting against environmental racism. And, um, and again, the exist, uh, um, uh, existence of these facilities, uh, the proliferation of them, um, and the, uh, the environmental abuses in our people of color communities. Um, but another example that I think um, is, is an exciting one and one that the Freedom Socialist Party has been organizing around and that I know you know about is the, the um, uh, organizing of Nostara Salgado in Mexico. Um, because I think that also is a very good example um, of uh, sh her being an indigenous feminist leader um, in Olinala in Guerrero, Mexico. Um, you know, the fact that uh, the community there uh, organized them, have, have been continuing, but they organized themselves because the police don't, don't protect the indigenous community. Um, so, and in Mexico, it's legal for indigenous communities to um, form their own community defense forces, police defense forces, um, and that Nestora was uh, elected as the comandanta, as uh, a leader of one of these uh, local community forces, um, but then was arrested herself and uh, has been a political prisoner now um, uh, under Mexican officials um, for over a year, since August of 2013. Um, but I think that that is a perfect example. The, the kinds of community defense forces that Nestor Salgado and, um, and other um, indigenous uh, communities in Mexico have been organizing, I think that's a great example um, of, you know, just exactly what is necessary when we see that the the systems and the powers that be um, are not uh, serving in our interests, they're not protecting us, and in fact, they're part of 
um, the raping of our lands and the exploitation of our uh, earth and and then of course of our people. Mm. Yeah. So, well, thanks for sharing and bringing back the case of Nestora Salgado here at Accent of Women. We have had shows dedicated to her, her struggle and sure. her situation as a political prisoner in a high security prison in, in Mexico. Right. Mm. But going back to the issue of uh, this environmental racism, and maybe we can discuss a little bit what what it means. What does exactly environmental racism is in this context? I think it means um, when toxic facilities um, are specifically and deliberately placed um, and established in communities of color, which uh, the study, in fact, the one that I mentioned in my article, um, talks about, um, there was a, an, an, uh, an update of the study, um, which was a, a landmark study titled Toxic Wastes and Race in the United States. Um, the first one was in 1987. Uh, and then there was a an update done in 2007. Um, and in fact, the 2007 study showed that even more people of color were living near polluted sites than um, in 1987. Um, and, and that's not an accident. That is a very uh, uh, deliberate um, move on the part of uh, officials and governments. Um, and, uh, and again, it, it has to do with Uh, you know, what I said, going back to the whole establishment of, um, you know, capitalist America and other capitalist countries that, um, you know, the very first um, uh, rationalization for stealing lands from uh, Native Americans, you know, is they, they uh, uh, portrayed Native Americans as an inferior peoples. Um, so that goes very deep, you know, when you talk about environmental racism, because then the whole um, myth is that, you know, people of color, um, that we are inferior peoples, that we don't deserve the same um, safety, education, housing, uh, jobs, um, uh, etc. Mm. Well, yeah, and this goes beyond just where waste is placed, but also about where people is um, can live and what type of sure. support there is to 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 maintain the a healthy environment that we saw when there are hurricanes in the United States that mm -hmm. are common on the coast right. no like people of color like we saw that in Hurricane Katrina but we saw it also in other regions of the country where there is an, a disaster of this nature what happens with the people of color like or, or poor people Yeah, in fact, a friend of mine, Tanya, who's um, a, a single mother, um, African-American um, uh, from New York, she was af uh, affected terribly by um, the storm that was here um, just a couple of years ago. Um, and the, the storm displaced so many people from the area called the Rockaways, um, where there are a lot of projects, um, you know, public housing projects and low-income housing Um, and her story, I think, is a, a very, unfortunately, a very common one among people of color where her family um, was displaced because of the storm um, and that officials could have prepared better for the storm um, long in advance of the storm, um, but that they, um, they didn't. And uh, the storm had terrible ramifications on people um, and... And so then, in fact, after 
Tanya and her family were relocated, um, you know, she's been moved from one shelter to another shelter. The shelter conditions are terrible. Um, you know, one of the shelters that she and her small children were in, um, you know, were, was rat infested. Um, um, you know, the, the shelters themselves are not habitable. They're just not livable. Um, and, um, and she's had a terrible time. There's been no priority placed on um, really finding housing um, and, um, and relocating uh, services for the people who were the hardest hit by, by the storm. Mm. Well, I think that the struggles for like the environment and also the fights against racism are becoming more and more important. Maybe we can like wrap up by you telling us a little bit about your views on these newly or re-emerging movements of the black movement, like the anti-racist movements, and other movements in the United States, and your 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 views on that and your hopes. Sure. Um, well, I'm I was very heartened and inspired by the um, the response, the upsurge uh, from the black community. Um, particularly the, the youth, um, the black youth who organized and were in the lead of the, the struggle uh, that came out of Ferguson. Um, and um, uh, what I was also very heartened by was the fact that this struggle was um, being led by the black community and as, as I said, especially young black people, but that it was really a multiracial struggle. And I think that that Um, is what it's going to take in order to um, truly overturn the system that is responsible for all of the suffering um, and attacks. Uh, but there was a really a, a wonderful multiracial response to um, the uh, Darren Wilson's uh, exoneration for Michael Brown's killing, and um, and then also you know in response to the Eric Garner verdict um, in New York. Um, and, uh, and there was, there were so many, as you probably heard in Australia, there were so many, um, marches and, uh, rallies and protests, um, across the country in the United States, um, that were multiracial and, um, and that included many, many white people, um, not necessarily even activists, of course, activists were there too, but a lot of people who were just so enraged that the system, um, Uh, could act with such, um, you know, impunity and um, and get away with it. And uh, and I think that it has signaled to a lot of people that there is something wrong with the system. Um, I think more and more people are um, are being affected, um, yes, by the police violence, but also just by um, the other um, abuses of capitalism. People are more people are losing jobs. More people are losing housing. You know, there was the um, the whole um, issue of the targeting of lower income people and people of color for uh, the, the mortgages crisis and, and really using low income people um, in such a way that, um, you know, it's preying on them for, for these loans and then at the same time um, throwing them out of their homes, you know, evicting them from their homes, making them homeless. Um, and, uh, and that actually is not only affecting people of color, that's affecting a large number um, of, of working class and lower income white people as well. So I think that's why so many people are seeing this as, um, you know, the, what's coming down from the system on all of us, people are experiencing as not just um, 
it, I think often it is portrayed as a race war, but people really realize that there is a, a whole economic, a whole class aspect to it that means that, you know, across all colors, people are being affected by um, by the violence and the abuse of, of capitalism. And when I say violence, I mean daily violence, you know, the kind of violence, everything from police killings to what people um, suffer on the job, in the workplace, um, you know, um, in housing, um, in the healthcare system, you know, the kind of, um, uh, of a violence that people face by not being able to um, see a doctor because they don't have um, health care coverage, health insurance, um, and uh, what we call Obamacare, the under Obama, mm -hmm. the, um, the Health Care Act, um, that, that really was more a gift to the insurance companies um, than anyone else. It has not helped the majority of people um, who, need, who need very basic health coverage. We just heard from Emily Wu, a Korean-American activist. She is a queer feminist and an organizer with Radical Women in New York. She is also the chair of the National Comrades of Color Caucus of her organization. And we talked about racist police violence and environmental racism in the United States. Topics that are addressed in her writings included in the book Talking Back, Voices of Color. This book is an anthology edited by Nelly Wong and published by Red Letter Press. If you are in Melbourne, Talking Back, Voices of Color will be launched on May the 2nd at 4.30 p.m. at the Solidarity Salon in 580 Sydney Road in Brunswick. For further information, you can find Radical Women on Facebook or email freedom.socialist.party at ocmail.com.au. I thank Alison Thorne and Radical Women for helping organize this interview. And that's all we have time for on today's Accent of Women. If you want to hear this show again or any of our other programs, you can download the podcast from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. And that's with the digit 3 and not spelled out in letters. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning into the show today. I'm Lourdes Garcia Larque, and I look forward to your company again in our next program. <laughs>